All right, everybody, don't drop that fast forward button. The sponsorship roll call is about to begin. Energy Consulting Limited provides complete project management and general contracting services to a variety of private sector clients on both commercial and residential construction projects. They act as the owner's representatives through the planning, design, budgeting, scheduling, construction, and occupancy processes. Clients appreciate their open, honest, and flexible approach to achieving their project goals. Although they're located in Surrey, BC, Energy works on projects all over the province, including the growing cities of the north and the beautiful coastal towns of Vancouver Island. They're always excited to explore new places and develop relationships with professionals wherever their clients' interests may be. Abacus North is a firm that specializes in mortgage banking solutions for complex projects. In addition to providing financing solutions in a traditional mortgage broker capacity, Abacus North provides direct loans that range from $2 million to $25 million. On a syndicated basis, they provide mortgage banking solutions up to $300 million. In most cases, their in-house capital solutions can bridge financing gaps that traditional lenders are unable to service. They specialize in providing land acquisition loans, construction financing for large-scale developments, income-producing properties, and single-purpose facilities. With a portfolio that includes high-rise, mid-rise, and low-rise condominiums, townhouse developments, shopping centers, agricultural properties, industrial developments, and medical marijuana facilities, Abacus North is at the forefront of creative mortgage banking solutions with a focus on fostering long-term relationships. They are a multifaceted organization that services domestic and international clients with their mortgage banking needs. Complex financing solutions require analytical thinking well beyond a typical mortgage broker relationship. As a result, they focus on providing engineered solutions for their client. Their key differentiation strategy is that they assist clients in actively managing the capital stack in order to minimize borrowing costs while maximizing flexibility. Abacus North focuses on national and global opportunities. Ascentia CPA has a team of new-gen chartered professional accountants that are dedicated to advancing companies using expertise combined with emerging technologies. The team at Ascentia will implement the latest accounting technologies, allowing you to not only run a business, but to run a smart business that will excel in your industry. Their focus is to provide growth-centric, value-added, and timely accounting services for businesses, as well as individuals across Canada. Unlike standard accounting firms, by embracing cloud-based software, the team at Ascentia will provide you with real-time accounting information on a secure platform that is accessible anywhere at any time, allowing you to make better informed decisions and gain more controlled overview of your financial data. The reliability and expertise you will experience with the professionals at Ascentia will assist you in the preparation of corporate and personal tax returns, financial statements, bookkeeping, government filings, tax and estate planning, as well as business advisory services. For more information on the advantages of online accounting and to book a complimentary meeting online, be sure to visit ascentiacpa.ca. We are I. Creating a partnership with um, Fantastic Life, which is um, like a, an app uh, that's gonna like you know like track like food applications and you know like 
um, you know, like where you log your micro and macro, macronutrients in, you know, like your food and it's going to track it. Um, so I'm going to subject myself to like all the different diets for a month on each one. So we're going to go plant-based for a month, carnivore for a month, um, huh? you know, and just, and like test that. And then um, like Ariel from Vitality Wellness. So she's going to do all my blood work, you know, so we're going to go under the microscope and look at <clears> my red blood cells, my white blood cells react and um, do like the emotional testing uh, with it as well. Nice. And I have an independent party that's going to do all the fitness testing, like my strength testing, endurance testing, you know, um, VO2 max and all that kind of stuff. So we're going to log it like along the way. Um, we're going to get a meal prep company to supply all the meals for it. Um, there's a juice company that's coming board. So we're all just going to kind of team up together to be able to, you know, kind of create this experiment and just say, you know, like, like these are the changes, you know, that we're going to go through in our bodies. And, you know, like, as I go through these changes, kind of highlighting like the struggle behind it, because like I'm comfortable in what I do, like everybody else, you know, like what I do happens to be a little bit more than most people, but I'm actually really comfortable doing yeah. it, you know, so going to strictly on a plant-based diet is going to be challenging for me. Going strictly keto is going to be challenging, yeah. strictly carnivore. So, you know, like when a lot of people have a, a tough time, you know, making those dietary changes or, you know, something as simple as drinking more water during the day or starting fitness, you know, like our whole campaign is like, let's change together. Like let's, let's start this struggle together. Like your struggle may look different than mine, but we're all going to struggle at something. So like, let's just get after it. It's so, kind of like supersize me on the healthy side of things. Yeah. Cause that's actually the only dad I wouldn't commit to is a month of like fast food and all that kind of stuff. Cause yeah. it's just been over a decade since I've ate, well, almost two decades now since I've ate any of that. And I'm just not willing to, to do no. that. I'm willing to experiment on the healthier side, but like when it comes to that kind of stuff, I'm I'm not interested in seeing what <clears throat> does to your cardiac output, you know, if I, yeah. you know, so like that kind of stuff, right? But, uh, yeah. Yeah. How about you? You know, I know that we talked last time on the, on the podcast, we talked that you might be starting a new venture of some kind and, uh, you know, it's a, a new project that you're looking forward to. So, uh, why, why don't you break it off for us and tell us a little bit about it? Yeah. Um, is this, uh, I'm presuming you're talking about the leadership side yeah. of things. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I have a company called Anchor Point Expeditions, and through that I offer leadership retreats for men. And what we what I do is I take men on I call them adventure based retreats. So basically we go uh, the the one that I'm running right now is a bow making retreat. So we actually make English longbows uh, for archery, wow, and cool. we go to Powell River. We have a place right on the ocean where we stay, and uh, the world's best, arguably the world's best bowyer, lives just a few minutes from that place where we stay. And so he has a little workshop, and we go to his workshop, and we build long bows over a period of four days. And that's during the daytime, and then in the evenings we dive very deeply into some personal development and growth work. And it's an incredible atmosphere and very cathartic for, for the men that partake in it. So it's been a lot of fun. I also have a surf one. Uh, my brother-in-law is actually one of the best stand-up paddleboarders in the world. Uh, he's recognized all over. And so we're doing a stand-up paddle surf retreat in Tofino in October. We're just finalizing the details for that. And then we're going to lead some flat water paddleboarding retreats in 2021. Oh, that's cool. So what are some of the things that you guys would dive into in, you know, into the nighttime seminars, you know, because I know this is relatively new territory for guys, you know, and there's, there's, there's a pretty big demographic amongst men that, you know, don't think that men go to retreats or should go to retreats or something that like we do as men. So, um, you know, like what is something that you guys, you know, do at those retreats? 
Yeah, it's a great question because a lot of men wouldn't consider doing work of this sort. A lot of men aren't even aware that it exists. Uh, partly that's why I've, I've combined it with the, the adventure component because it's something that's very enticing. Every man who I've told about the bow making retreat gets really excited about making their own longbow out of us. Yeah, I, as soon as you said that, I wanted to join. I'm just all like, are you guys like, when are we going? You know, like yeah, it, yeah. immediately what you think, right? And so what, what happens, what unfolds is this beautiful magic where during the day we're in the workshop, we start with a chunk of wood. It's about that big in diameter and it's a really rough cut piece of Pacific U. And there is a bow somewhere within that piece of wood. And it's up to each man under the guidance of, of the bowyer, the teacher, to hand carve that stave of wood down to the point where it starts to look like a bow. And then once you get the rough shape of a bow, then you start to shave it even more to get what is a, a, a more precise bow and more to these, the specs that you want it. Because as you, as you peel back layers, you'll find all sorts of nuances in the bow and what I've found is, and what the men who have done the retreat have found is it parallels the work that we're doing on our own psyches and on our own development, because we're literally peeling back layers of suppressed emotions. Some of those are consciously suppressed, some are unconsciously suppressed. And this goes back, it can go all the way back and back to the womb. Theoretically, it can go back generations before that, based on the genetics that were passed down from, from our ancestors. And so we, we will undertake various sorts of processes, I'll call them. Uh, some are anywhere from 10 minutes. Others might take two hours or the whole evening. Uh, a lot of it involves sharing with the other men. And, and then we go into some meditation or breathing type of processes. There are some physical postures that we do or processes. And each each part of the curriculum basically builds on previous work that we've done. And so we, we get about five hours in each evening, so about 20 hours over the four-day retreat. And where we start on the first hour is very, very different from where we finish on the final day. And it kind of the work ends up, for the most part, getting – a bit lighter, I would say, as the retreat progresses, because when we start, it, it starts out pretty heavy in the sense that most men haven't shared these things. And as they start sharing the things they're consciously aware of, they start to realize of all, about all the layers they're unconsciously aware of. And some of that comes out organically in conversation. I find that the men who partake, uh, the brotherhood that is formed almost immediately if not immediately is so beneficial to the experience because you develop this extreme trust in the men who you're working with and literally we become we become brothers of a sort and each man starts to learn not only about their own suppressions and their own psychological wounds and shadows but they also start to get a better understanding of the the other people who are in the group and so it becomes harder and harder for each man to hide behind whatever it might be that they're used to hiding behind. Maybe it's bravado. Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's introversion. Maybe it's cockiness. Maybe it's laughter. 
there's all sorts of of masks, so to speak, that men will, that people in general will develop to put forth as their egoic self. The ego is what we present to to society. It's what we wear out in public. And underneath that ego is is the true self. And the true self is partly what makes up that ego, and it's partly what has been suppressed. And again, some of that suppression will start even pre pre vitro. It can it can start in our ancestors, but once we come into this world, uh, based on the environment that we're brought up in and the the cues that we are given from our caretakers, we very quickly start to adapt and present ourselves in a way that either conforms so we can get hopefully love and acceptance or in some cases doesn't conform. And, and then is that's when people find themselves more of pariahs or outcasts and they perhaps haven't had that love. And some of the greatest artists, geniuses, masterminds, athletes that ever lived at some point went the other route of, of basically allowing their savant-like patterns to emerge, even though those aren't often readily accepted by the general public, because those can be seen as distractions or whatever it might be. Of course, we have a <clears throat> we have an epidemic, I think, of of a cultural suppression of people's personal expression, and we will use all sorts of things to do that from physical abuse to verbal abuse to punishments to, to medical diagnosis such as ADHD and prescribed drugs like Ritalin to create people who conform to the norms of society and doing that, we are losing so much of the authentic self. So and you know, go ahead. just sort of cut you off in, you know, like, like as you're talking, you know, like, like, like describing like the program and then kind of like what you're alluding to here is, you know, like I see this is present in like, you know, where you build these brotherhoods in, you know, policing, military, you know, firefighters, like, because I think like, you know, not only is it creating an environment where, you know, like men are typically around each other, but like you by default are going to share because you're around these people the most often they're just walking through life with you in a very time dominant state. So like you see these brothers form there, but like we typically outside of those environments, like especially as men, like we don't, we don't choose to form those environments, you know? And like where you're saying, we're like, we're, you know, like not conforming, like, you know, you also see that in something that we, we all watch, we all do is, you know, like in an athletic environment, like where we want, you have to conform, you know, potentially to a team, you know, but like your individual contribution and who you are and your style is, you know, like we, we want that, you know, like we want LeBron James to be LeBron James, you know, we want the former Kobe Bryant to be Kobe Bryant, you know, we want Michael Jordan to be them because they're these individuals and we praise that. But as soon as we step outside of that back into like quote unquote normal society, Again, like it's this singular path where we all kind of put our chin into our chest and just kind of like walk down the road because this is the road that we should all go. And like you said, either you're going to choose to walk down that road, you know, willingly, you're going to blindly walk down that road, you're going to be medicated and walk down that road, or you're going to be ostracized and you're going to like walk out, but you're not going to feel comfortable on the other path that you're walking on. Like, 
Like, why do you think it got to that? Like, how did we get to that? Why did we get that? And is it just because our lives have become over systematized? I think that's part of it. I find that very few men that I work with have had the type of nurturing parenting, and especially more on the paternal side, that creates a healthy balance in them. We were, we were taught by our fathers, typically. Our fathers were taught by their fathers. And up until only the last few decades, men were not supposed to show emotions. Men were supposed to take whatever it was that we were feeling and suppress it, push it down, and only show our, our strength on the outside, only show our ruggedness or, or again, that bravado not to have any sort of uh, any sort of weaknesses that people could could press upon. So that's where men that's what we were how we were supposed to carry ourselves. And so I think now we are in a position where the current generation of of men older and younger is we've become so accustomed to that to that way of life that we have a tough time accessing our true emotions. And typically what happens is there is some sort of crisis in life, whether it's the, the midlife crisis or whether it's something that is uh, far more tragic than that through the loss of loved ones or whatever it may be. Typically there's some sort of event that will finally put a man over the tipping point where he realizes I need to do some work on myself. I need to figure out, what it is that is preventing me from having joy in life or why it is that I'm so angry all the time or why I don't feel love for the people in my family who you would think I would feel love for. Why are my relationships always, my, my intimate relationships always falling apart in the same way? So there's all these questions that once someone starts to really look internally, there can actually be answers to those. And on the retreats, we most most time when people go on retreats, they think about running away from life, getting away from whatever it is that is stressing them. On these retreats, it's the opposite. We run towards that because no one controls our feelings but us. And running away from the stressful environment is not going to change our conditioning and the way our feelings are processed internally. The only way that we can, we can change those is by facing those head on and realizing that, that most of it is our projection, our narrative. And if we can change that narrative, we can actually change the way we start to show up in the world. And it's a very complex process in the sense that there's so many variables. There's potentially so many moving parts. There's so many wounds and scars. And yet it's also simple. There's beautiful simplicity in it because in almost every case, I find that as soon as you open up the doorway, for that exchange, as soon as you give permission and each man gives himself permission to step into this new 
new form of being as far as being able to, to listen to their personal emotions and to share those, it just starts to flow. And when it flows, beautiful things will emerge. And the men are there at the retreats to help keep each man within his integrity. And then the challenge is everyone on day four is ready to go back into life and repair relationships and take steps to launch a business they've been wanting to do or to change their job or whatever it may be. And it seems so easy to do that when you're in the final moments of this retreat setting, but it, it's really hard to actually do that once you leave that environment because we're at a different energy level. When you're in an environment like that where everyone is focused on personal growth, everyone is focused on positivity. No one's on their phones. No one's on social media. No one's drinking. No one's doing out, taking any sort of drugs. Everyone is fully present, probably more so than they've been in decades. Or ever. Or potentially ever. The energy shifts and you literally will feel like you can take on any of the challenges that may come your way. But very quickly, and I found this personally myself, when I leave that environment, I'll, I'll have this buzz of this new energy that'll last for a few days or a week. But if I don't take steps to truly calcify that, those changes within myself, I'm going to go right back to where I started. But and that's always something that it sort of cut you off. This is something that I always say to people too. And you're like, in regards to like, I only used to use it in regards to like, like fitness and like health and wellness, you know, but like now I've kind of expanded in my thought process across the board is that, you know, like if it's taken us 20, 30, 40 years to be able to get to this point, you know, like we can't have this one moment that then forever changes everything where this one retreat or I go to the gym one time or I start eating healthy one time, I start drinking more water one time, like all these these different things we can use to be able to make this this vessel as healthy as what it can be. And like I said, like that is arguably like the most challenging part. It's not to me it recognizing these things is a portion, it's a piece of the puzzle, but the hardest part is like we said, like the calcification of this is now the way that I live my life. You know, because I even hear from like doctors who run seminars, you know, and saying like, okay, we need to make changes in the medical industry every other weekend. It's like, rah, 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 let's do it. Get back on to Monday, right back into regular practice. You know, like mm-hmm. those just seem to be like our, our standard norms because we come back into it. But this is why I say, you know, that when a lot of these like, you know, Eastern principles, you know, like that we kind of get are shifting more back into it in the West is that think when people live their lives like this every day, like that was your operating platform every day because you didn't have this other environment to go back into. You arguably had a little bit more of that holistic environment where people were thinking along the same, you know, process. There's a lot less external stimulation. You know, you're a lot more to the earth, eating more natural foods, you know, like out in nature, all these kind of things. Think of how all of our lives could be if you could live an entire life like that, you know, without having to like really focus on, the calcification of this thought process because you've lived this other way for so long. You can, we all can. I truly believe it. And you, we, we do see great leaders in the world who have done it. I'm just finishing Gandhi's autobiography. And there's an example of someone who never wavered in his integrity and his moral code and things that would be radically offensive to most people would not offend Gandhi. And the reason being is because he understood that 
Only we can control our personal feelings. Only we control our emotions. Nobody can make you feel a certain way. And yet we live in a culture where the language itself is, is basically, it revolves around victimization. How often do you hear on a daily basis someone say, you made me feel such and such? Well, no, no one did. No matter what someone did to you or near you, you decided to feel a certain way. Their action in itself was not what is causing you suffering. It is your response to their action. Now, that's not to say there aren't some horrible things being done to people every moment all over the world. There absolutely are. And yet there are some people who are recipients of those horrible deeds and they're not victims of them. Nelson Mandela, in prison for decades, he forgave and loved his captors to the point that when he came out of prison, he was able to spread his so-called enlightenment around the globe. He was an inspiration for everyone. He didn't go to prison and stew on all the negative things that had brought him there. He didn't hate the people who, who who captured him. He realized that, in essence, um, whether it is true or not, that if you if you adopt kind of a belief system that everyone is doing the best they can do with the circumstances they are in or the, the cards they've been dealt, then it can put us in a place of much greater empathy for others. Knowing that the person who just flipped you off while driving down the highway well, you, you don't know what they're dealing with. You don't know what sort of life circumstances brought them to that moment where they decided they need to flip you off. And so to quickly judge them and, and basically do the same thing back to them, even if you're not physically doing it, you're thinking it, asshole, or whatever it may be, yeah. we're just perpetuating that negativity as opposed to a much harder but certainly a more joyful place to be, a more peaceful place, is to adopt a stance of, as, as flaky as it sounds, of universal love, recognizing that we're all here doing the best we can do with the circumstances that we have, and we're all going to make mistakes, and we're all going to do things that may end up being perceived by another person as hurtful, and yet we can still just do the best that we can do in every moment. It's not something that you do it today. Today I'm the best version of me, and tomorrow I'm going to go back to being not so good version. Every moment has to be a conscious decision of how we want to show up. And that's something where when people start to do this, this personal growth work, they start to become more and more in tune to what that conscious presence feels like and to the realization of a greater power. Some people call it God. Uh, whatever that may be, may be for you, it's this, it's this greater connection to spirit in which we are all connected. And I know a lot of people might not believe that, but I think at many points in life, most people will have some sort of event happen where they will start to recognize that, or at least feel that, this interconnectedness. And if we're in a place where we realize that we're all kind of one as your podcast, we are I, we are one. It makes it a lot easier to, to be forgiving, to be loving towards others. And I find to be responsible 
for our own emotions and feelings. And that's the responsibility is something that was hugely transformative in my own personal journey, realizing that no matter what narrative was coming out of me, what I was complaining about in an intimate relationship, complaining about the other person being responsible for this and this and that, and that's why I'm miserable right now. At some point, I, I got to a place where I flipped that around. I thought, well, if I want to be with this person, I can't be with part of that person. I can't just be with that part of the, that that part of that person who's fun, or that part of the person who I think is sexy. I have to be with a whole person, and to be with that whole person, I have to be able to accept all the characteristics of that person, all the actions of that person. It doesn't mean I have to put up with 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 everything that they try to deal out. It doesn't mean that at all. But it means that if I'm making the commitment to love and be with this person, I do have to some way find a way to accept it all. And whatever triggers are being pulled within me based on someone else's actions, that's not their fault. It's not their issue to deal with. It's up to me to deal with it. It's up to me to decide, is this okay for me? Is this okay? Is this something that I am willing to to be present with? Because if I'm not, then I'm not willing to be present with this person. And what I find is that by taking radical responsibility, I learned anyway that everything that was being dished out, so to speak, that I was taking in, it had nothing to do with the other person. It had everything to do with me. And going back to Gandhi, it was very hard, if not impossible, for someone to do something that would trigger him to the point where he would come out of his integrity and lash out. And the reason being is because he had come to peace with who he was and, and, and with his connection to spirit and connection to everyone, to everything. And so when someone was hurtful or violent towards him, well, in essence, that was him. So either he's, he's in a position where he's a victim of that or he's in a position where he recognizes that how I choose to, to take this, this input determines whether or not I suffer from it. And so suffering basically is our choice. And from suffering, often comes our greatest growth because at some point we have to suffer to realize that there are things within us that we need to work on. So if someone is triggering you, if your your wife or your husband or whomever, your parents, your brother, if they are able to trigger you, that means you've got some stuff internally that you haven't sorted out that you need to work on. And in my relationship with my wife, the the number of triggers that I now have have decreased drastically. In my relationship with my father, the number of triggers have decreased drastically to the point now where I know if I get triggered, it becomes an opportunity for growth and learning as opposed to an opportunity to, to try to trigger someone back, to lash out at them, to try to hurt them in return. I've gotten to a place now where if I'm being, if I'm in my integrity 
and if I if I'm being patient with myself, I can take those those inputs and I can realize, well, this is this is all me. This is all me, and in in some cases, I'm just projecting some of my suppressed feelings, some of my shadows outwardly. Maybe I'm suppressing my anger and projecting it out, whatever it may be. Often, and as as the, the saying goes, uh, what you don't like in someone is a reflection of what you don't like in yourself. It really is, it is true when you dive into it because Gandhi would not project out anger because he had come to terms into peace with his. And so when someone was angry towards him, he didn't didn't retaliate with anger. He retaliated, poor choice of words, he responded with peace and love. As he said, an eye for an eye and the whole world goes blind. And so a lot of what I what I work on with personally and with men is taking responsibility, knowing that every everything that happens in your life doesn't mean bad things don't happen. And it doesn't mean bad bad things aren't intentionally done to you. But how we choose to respond to those determines whether or not we are a victim of those. And we can all choose not to be a victim. And there's something right now going around, especially in the universities, where there's a lot of uh, conflict around freedom of speech and speakers are being canceled. There was, I think someone at UBC just the other week was canceled because they have a very strong view. I know Jordan Peterson out of university of Toronto. Uh, he's, he's been vetoed in a lot of situations because he has a very strong viewpoint and people get offended very easily. And then being offended again, it's our own personal choice. You could say the nastiest thing to me right now, and I could choose not to be offended by it. Whereas somebody else might decide that's the most offensive thing they've ever heard, and I'm a victim to that now. See, and this is the interesting part that I find behind that is that if you find offense in what somebody else has to say, what gives you the right to speak, because they're both essentially the same thing. You know, like, and obviously we can put this into, like, relative terms, like, where's the limit of free speech go and you know, mm-hmm. these kind of things. But, like, a lot of people forget, like, you know, if you're allowing somebody else to speak and share their thought, whether you agree with it or not is essentially giving yourself permission to be able to speak freely amongst your own thought process as well. Mm-hmm. So, but people just want to think, stay in their singular track. You know, it's like the same thing like what you were, like, you know, just explaining there is that, you know, like, how did we get to this point where we would rather claim to be a victim of circumstance so we don't have to actually self-reflect or analyze or, like, dig deep within inside of ourselves instead of taking, like, accountability? Because it wasn't too long ago that if you didn't take immediate accountability for who you are and how you operated yourself and reflected back on, like, what that meant to the world, you just died. Mm-hmm. Like, that, like, that was it. Like, you, had, like, you didn't eat, you didn't have a house, you didn't have clothes on your back, like, like, arguably like that was like in the very distant past you know but like now we come in instead of taking any kind of like responsibility it's just it's so much easier to be able to claim you know being like this victim of circumstance victim of life like why why did we get there how did we get there so fast and what's the purpose behind it well part of it i think is a vicious perpetuating cycle because the violence done by others uh the 
the anger projected by others, it's a very negative energy state. And if we as recipients decide to adopt the mantle of victimhood, we are also in a very negative state, which means around the world, as, as it turns out it is happening, there's this growing negative energy. You look at media, very rarely does media ever praise something good that's happening. Very rarely are they, are, is in the media, is it ever sharing stories of love and peace? Well, typically, the media is stor- sharing stories of political fights and accidents and natural disasters, whatever it may be. And so people are, they are, they're junkies to that type of information, for lack of a better word. They become addicted to it. And so if we continue to be in the victim state, we are just putting out a negative energy, the same as the the violent people are putting out, same as the angry people are putting out, same as the guilty people are putting out. And so until we can reach a place where we are projecting a positive energy, an energy of of courage or an energy of, of forgiveness, of gratitude, of love, of peace, we're actually just, we're part of it. We're part of that wheel that's spinning out of control. And so I think a a big starting point is taking responsibility, just taking full personal responsibility for where we are and for everything that has happened to us in our lives. It It doesn't mean that being hit by a car where the driver is at fault is your fault and you need to take responsibility or, and you need to, uh, yeah, you need to take responsibility for the other drivers. You don't have to do that, but you do need to take responsibility for how you're going to respond in, in the wake of that event. And you can either give up or you can decide you're going to rise above it. And most greatness, I believe comes out of challenge. Most greatness in people, is, is born out of a challenge and it's taking those challenges and realizing that those are learning opportunities and having gratitude for those that can be a major game changer. And do you think that like, because life has become so neutered in, in aspect of like, we're not really challenged organically these days. We have to seek challenges out and because we have to seek challenges out it kind of taps into our willingness to want to do that. We're like, you know, again, in our not too distant past, like challenges were just presented by way of like waking up in the day. Like, so like there's a part of you that like you had to test your character on a very regular basis because like life just did that, you know, but like now I can wake up and it's 68 degrees in my house. I can put on one of my many pairs of shorts and I can put on one of my many shirts and I can hop in my car and I can drive down the road and, you know, like I, I'm testing these like really like the, these ways that don't mean a lot to who I actually am as a person. Like, so like these little tests, like I feel like a lot of people don't know how to emotionally handle these situations because they're not really situations where conditioned or, you know, like yeah. there's, there's nothing about us that understands like, well, when I'm being inundated with negative negativity on social media, maybe what I should do is 
take a step away from that because yeah. it's actually not healthy for me because these are all like very new components of life right you know versus like before was like like you said you know i might have to go find my food i might have to go you know create this environment there's challenges that come along with me just waking up every day you know but like yeah. with life being so easy and just okay well i have to continually search this out then because i have to search this out i have to find this avenue then to self-reflect on it you know because there's just, there's nothing. And, and like you said, like I, I feel exactly the same way. And I think there's a growing culture that does that. We need challenge, you know, like we need to struggle. We need these opportunities because how are you ever going to know anything about yourself unless if you are put your yourself in a position where your, your character comes into question, you know, like where your, your morals and your ethics actually legitimately come into question because you know, if you're arguing with somebody on Twitter, like you, you don't have to have a lot of morals and ethics behind that because it's faceless. Like you should, but like you can see why it doesn't. You know, mm -hmm. now if like us as two men are having a conversation, I feel like you, you become at a lot more of a interpersonal level where you're going to connect with like your, your morals and your ethics and your character in that situation to a lot greater degree. But we're building these platforms in many different areas to be able to remove ourselves from lives. Or, or life in general, you know, but then there's, you know, you know, gentlemen like yourself, you know, and, and again, like this podcast, another one where it's like, okay, we need to bring this back the other way. Um, where do you think we are right now on that sliding scale? Do you think there's, there's more people trying to bring us back to that area where we need to recognize the value of struggle? Or do you think there's more people that still are like, I'm happy playing this victim card because it's just easier for me because there's no accountability to it. And where there's no accountability, there's no responsibility. And where there's no responsibility, I don't have to change. It's a difficult, difficult discussion. And I agree with you completely that we're, we're very pampered beings, at least you and I and many of the people that we know. We don't have to go out and search for our food. We don't have to wonder what our shelter is going to be when winter comes around. We don't have to worry about survival from, from wild predators. And so I think a lot of people have turned to the media and social media and the Internet to get some of that stimulation, so to speak. Uh, one of the gentlemen on, my, on, I think, my last bow retreat, he had never made anything with his hands. And so the process of being there and carving a bow, he was, at times he was at the point of tears because it was such an amazing experience for him to be creating something with his own hands because he, he never had to do that before. Which, as you said, when you think just a few generations ago, if you didn't create it, you didn't have it. Mm -hmm. And so it's now, yeah, I can go on Amazon and I can have anything I want delivered tomorrow. I don't have to leave my home for anything. I can have all Not this. only that is like you, you never need to actually fix anything either because it's easier to replace it. So that like, doesn't even tap into our resource of like trying to re-engineer this, this thing in front of us no. that is broken or try to free, like, you know, reverse engineer it to understand it, to be able to figure out how to fix it. And, a, and, a, <laughs> and that's a, what you just said is an amazing, uh, it holds, it's an amazing metaphor and it holds so true in our personal relationships as well. We don't have to fix them if they're broken because we can just unfriend somebody on Facebook and find a new one. We can just fill that void. 
And so I think that's where the victimization becomes, in one way, becomes very problematic because someone says something or does something on social media and you find it offensive. That's your own choice, again, to be offended by it. And instead of trying to connect with that person, you dismiss that person. You dismiss their views. You dismiss that person in general, and you don't have to speak with them again because you're not really friends. You're just social media friends. Whereas in the past, your alliances with your community were in part or with your tribe were what kept you alive. You couldn't dismiss the medicine person in your tribe because if you ever got ill, you know, you would need the medicines or the the uh, spiritual abilities that he or she had to help bring healing to you. You couldn't dismiss the the leader of your tribe because you would be an outcast. There were there were all these restrictions around not how you could show up because I think in those situations it was, there was more authenticity, but there were more restrictions around how you could decide to be with an integrity or be without integrity. And right now we live in a society where it's so easy not to be in integrity that I don't think I, I strongly believe that many people don't even know what being in integrity means. Uh, And of course, it's different for every person. But until you're able to fully unpeel the layers of of whatever turmoil is going on within you, you're probably not going to figure out what that integrity is. I, I can reflect back on when I was in my youth. I had no integrity. I didn't know what morality was. And so I would I would do whatever felt good to me, regardless of what it felt like to other people. And fortunately, I've I've grown out of that. And now that I'm a a father, I can realize how I can recognize that a lot of that ambivalence that I had in my youth was a, a complete reflection to my upbringing. And that's not saying anything negative about my parents, because they were parenting based on the way they were brought up. And so at some point, that cycle has to be recognized and interfered with. And so I choose to parent my children very differently to, than to what I see in the larger society. Um, fortunately, I see a lot of people who, who share like-minded parenting um, characteristics that my wife and I do, but I also see a lot of things that I worry will be traumatically scarring for for children who are recipients of that. And I think that's pretty clear that that's what's happening in society that we have a, a maladapted public basically because we've been, we've been brought up that way. And now kids are being brought up in the internet cell phone culture where they are on their phones. I don't know. My kids are, my daughter's, oh, my son's at six and he has a classmate who has two or three different phones. According to him, I don't know how, how true that is, but when I go pick up my kids from school, I see, uh, fortunately, my kid's school is a cell phone-free zone, but once kids are outside waiting for pickup, a lot of them are on their phones. And these are, these are students from ages like 5 to 12, 13. When did we lose sight of being present with nature, being present with our company, with our friends? Now you go to a restaurant and you'll see two couples sitting opposite each other on the table and they're both on their phones. 
and they're only talking about what they're seeing on their phones. That's not connection. You don't need the other person to have that connection. The other person may as well just be on your phone, on social media. And so I think there's been this great cultural hijacking of our ability to interrelate with others and to actually see the value within that interrelation. And uh, it's, it's creating, as you, as you said, when it's a creating a situation where when things are broken, i.e. relationships, they're left broken. And, and a lot of people sort of cut you off again. And like, and where we know, like, in, you know, like, I think like we've kind of like all seen like these narratives, no matter like what platform it is. But I think like the, if you've never seen this, you can definitely say that you've most likely have felt this at least one time in your life. Like when you give somebody a hug long enough, you feel that something has changed. Like there's been a layer that has been stripped away. Like, you know, call it five seconds, 10 seconds, whatever it is. But like, you just know that there becomes like this bond, you know? So like, I, I think what I've noticed is that we've lost the understanding that that same thing happens through communication, you know, like where, you know, like that phone in between the conversation or like the not being connected, not being present, you know, within those, within that conversation, it builds like a disconnect and it makes conversation very generic. You know, when we make conversation very generic, what leads to the hug, you know, like what leads to the compatibility and you know, like what leads, you know, like whether you're, you're just like two guys talking or, you know, whether you're a husband and wife or whatever that narrative like may be. And this is the problem. Like when it comes back to like with our kids is because I see parents arguing the fact that kids should be allowed to have phones in elementary school. Why would a, why would a school have the right to stand in the way of a child having a phone? And then I'm sitting here trying to figure out, well, I think it's pretty obvious, but like what's going on in your life that like you, oh, you see the value of this phone superseding interpersonal connections that your child has the opportunity to make because we all grew up in a world where we were, we can't even understand that because I didn't even have a cell phone until I was in like 20, 19, 20 years old. Mm -hmm. So to be like five or six and have a phone, like, like to build that kind of disconnect because we know as adults, we're trying to disconnect from our phones and we only have maybe like, so if I got a phone when I was 20 and I'm 36 now, I have 16 years of sporadic cell phone use. Probably the last eight years has been more heavy than the first eight years before that because I was just getting into it. There's no, I didn't text anybody. It was phone calls, you know, about like that kind of stuff, right? You know, but like, could you imagine compounding you know, like another 15 years on top of that, then say, okay, Todd, now sit in this restaurant and have this meaning, com meaningful conversation with this woman. And on top of that, have this like this emotional compatibility with this woman. Okay. Now live the rest of your life with her or him or whatever, you know, mm -hmm. maybe like, like, how do we not see those things being like destructive forces in our lives and especially like in our children's lives? It's obviously a very contentious area, and, and you and I grew up, as you said, not having cell phones, and so we remember life without them. Yeah. The current new generation, my children, they don't know life that existed pre-cell phones, pre-internet, pre-tablets, and so I don't think we have any way of actually knowing what some of the possible repercussions of that will be, but we do see it very clearly when when 
our connection to our cell phone becomes more important than the connection to others. And I think part of it too is, as you said, that some parents are arguing that their kids should be able to have cell phones. And I'm not saying one way or another how it should be. I, my wife and I chose a school where they are not part of the day to day. That was our choice. Uh, but I think also because we live in a, a very fear-based society that some parents argue that it's a safety factor. And I can see that. I can fully understand that. When my kids are old enough to start biking some of the way to school, which I, I think they'll be able to do soon, I can see the reason why having a cell phone could be beneficial. And if that's the case, then perhaps some parameters need to be put in place so that the child understands what that cell phone is for. Uh, because I do feel that once it becomes the main mode of communication and connection, then relationships not only currently will suffer, but certainly future relationships are going to suffer as well. Because the art of connecting, it's a skill. It's a skill that has to be built. And we all have met the people who can walk into our room and immediately all eyes turn on turn towards them, not because they're a celebrity, but because they have discovered this this art or this gift of being able to connect. And their energy is at such a higher level that they just they carry that energy and it reverberates out and everyone feels that and is drawn to them. But that's a skill. And I I think it's very unlikely that someone's going to be able to generate or harness that type of energy if they are always on their devices or if their devices are more important to them than human connection. Yeah, which then, like, you know, say, like, make, like, a future argument that, like, you know, when, you know, somebody, you know, hypothetically in 20, 30 years from now, like, holds a seminar to be able to get men back up to, like, where we're at today without the seminar. You know, because mm. we're just kind of that much a little bit more in the rebel. Because, you know, I just want to cover something real quick. This is something I talk about with people, like, regularly. Because say we give, like, our children a cell phone and I'm not in in by way I say this it's not that I wouldn't do it I'm just throwing a scenario out there so say we give a, a cell phone to our child and say take this cell phone just in case so now I'm telling you that the potential for fear in this society is real like you yeah. need to now be consciously aware there's fear out there whether there is or isn't Absolutely. yeah you no know, like coupled with like studies that we know that Say if you leave your child in the car and run into the store for two minutes, like whatever you grab, you go pay for gas and you come up that, you know, or five minutes you run and grab like this milk and you come out of the store. Like we're taught, like not only is that extremely inappropriate, but it's extremely unsafe and you would be potentially a bad parent if somebody's seen you doing that. Well, like the statistics, I believe I'm probably going to butcher this, but like in an average city in like Canada or the United States, and I say average, obviously there's the exclusions, but it would take about 30,000 years if you run the numbers on how many like abductions there is versus population and you know so on and so forth. That it would take about that long for your child to ever, anything to ever happen to your child. But like we want to think like the minute that, that we step outside that car that that child is going to be gone or they're going to be harmed in some kind of way or like that's the world that we live in. You know, or that like, and you know, like I, I challenge people to think too and when I was young, you know, and when you were young, I don't know if you heard this narrative too, is it was always the strength in numbers concept. That's the way that you protect yourself. You not you don't go by yourself. You get all your buddies and go, 
meet me at the park. I don't know what time. After school. What time is that? Just after school, man. Meet us there. Everybody's there. You bike around the neighborhood together. The problem is now is that you're most likely going to be walking down the neighborhood by yourself or you're going to be with like one other friend because most kids aren't allowed out by themselves. So you don't even have the strength and numbers concept. So then if there is fear out there, now you're more vulnerable because then you don't have like this little army following you around. And like, these are all the kind of the avenues that we're choosing to be able to, to take in life, you know, versus, you know, then I have some like people on the podcast who hear these narratives about like these parents from like, around the world or like immigrants when they come to Canada and I talk to them and they're just like, Oh yeah. You know, like I was five in, you know, like I played in the jungle where there was tigers and panthers or like, you know, like there was terrorists blowing things up down the street and we just had to make sure that we didn't go in like the sketchy neighborhoods. And like, we think sketchy neighborhoods is just like, you know, somebody who needs social assistance here and sketchy neighborhoods there is like there's terrorists on the roof with AK 47s, you know? So, you know, and, they've somehow magically made it as far as to be able to like become an adult and, you know, immigrate to Canada, you know? So like, where do we instill false fear in our children? Then they live in this environment where there's actually nothing to fear, but we coach them in an environment to think that there's fear in this, this world. Yeah. It's, as I said earlier, fear is speaking of negative negative emotional states to be in fear is certainly one of those negative states. And so it does breed more fear. And you and I, I believe talked on the last podcast, I think we were talking about Sri Lanka and I was, I was mentioning how happy and joyful the people are, the kids. And just as you said, they would always be running around together. There were always groups of children, always laughing never on devices. Of course, when I was there most recently, it was not pre-cell phone, but it was pre-smartphone anyway. Uh, so I don't know if it's changed now, but uh, it wasn't about connecting to devices. It was about connecting connection with your community. And it brought so much peace and joy, even in Sri Lanka when I was there during the Civil War. As you said, there are people with guns, there are soldiers, there are uh, terrorist groups, and yet it wasn't a fearful type of environment to be in. That just wasn't spread. It the, the fears or the the atrocities had a real um, a real possibility of of coming becoming reality, but it wasn't something that seemed to determine the way society moved forward. Why do we make that determination here then? Like. Why do we not have that? We live under the presumption that it hypothetically one day has the opportunity to happen, but also so does the biggest earthquake that's going to last yeah. last 80,000 years. Like we live in these hypothetical situations. Like, yes, we should be prepared for this earthquake. And I guess living in Vancouver, we should potentially prepare for a future terrorist attack and all these different things. But again, what does that do to our every day when we're constantly living in all these environments that we should be prepared for because something might happen one time? Yeah, I don't know. But like, I, I do know that when I'm in the, the U.S., especially if I'm visiting someone who often has the TV or the news on, the stimuli... And maybe it's the same here in Canada. I don't watch TV and I try not to listen to the news. Uh, but the stimuli coming in 
is it's horrific <laughs> when you really think you turn on a news station and it's just newscasters yelling at one another, literally yelling and spreading fear and hate. And that is what some people are, are exposing themselves to 18 hours a day. And their kids are being exposed to that too. It becomes a normal fabric of life. And when you're, when you're working with that as your normal fabric, it's, it's really hard to create a different sort of pattern that can catch on enough that entire groups of people will start to, to take cues from that. I do see it happening. I do see communities that are so close knit and, and so beautiful for families to grow up in. And they are often communities that have started farmers markets and they have, uh, various events at, at the parks or in other community centers and, and the houses are unlocked and it's okay for kids to come over to your house and come in and ask if so-and-so is there to play. And it's in a way it's, it's back. It's similar probably to how a lot of, a lot of us grew up. I was going to say the good old days. I've been waiting yeah, to say it. Like, yeah, just going and just opening the door and walking into somebody's house. And yeah. Hey, is Jason here? Like, no, 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 he's at the park. And they just run as fast as you can to the park and, you know, just to see if they're there, you know, like, yeah. The anticipation, the excitement, and the thrill. But, like, there was never a time that I remember, you know, I'm sure there probably was, but I say, like, it was so infrequent that I can't remember that. Like, I wasn't looking over my shoulder as I was running down the street to the park to see if my friends were there, that I was worried about whether or not there was somebody behind me that was going to kidnap me or do something <laughs> awful to me. Like, my focus was just, like, I should have been there five minutes ago, or why did they wait for me? Or, you know, like, it's just, like... Right that excitement and that enthusiasm, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure the joy is still there. I see it in my kids all the time, but it, it is, uh, I think a more difficult environment and on the whole now for that, to, that to happen. And, you know, and like, and I guess it comes back to like, you know, like what we talked about, so like we've kind of like identified what coaches us down the road of like wanting to live in this fear-based environment. But like, why do you think we buy into it? Why do we think we sit there and say, like, I, I actually want to live this this narrative? Is we, do you think it's because we just never step outside the lane of, you know, like the CNN, the MSNBC, and then like the Facebook and Instagram feeds that are their algorithms or, you know, like, because we see something on the news, and then we Google it. It's like, well, I see coronavirus is taking over the entire planet. So I'm going to Google like coronavirus and just like, oh my God, this thing is taking over now. Like my Facebook feed, my Instagram feed are just like, oh my God, I'm going to die. You know, they got to stay inside and nobody can go anywhere. Yeah, of course. And all that information is readily at our, our fingertips to, to track down and find. So we can become easily immersed in whatever topics, positive or negative. You used the word a moment ago, narrative. And I think that's such an important topic because a narrative is the narrative that, that, is your thoughts is basically a compilation of your thoughts. It's not necessarily what reality is. It is your narrative of your life, your place in this world. And we have narratives about everything, about every relationship. We have a narrative about every scenario. We have a narrative. And what I found personally is recognizing that that narrative in a way is a self-fulfilling prophecy 
we can actually start to break the negative narratives and replace them with more generative narratives that are going to bring about positive results than negative. I'll give you an example of that. Uh, two, three, a few years ago, I was at a retreat, at a retreat with men. And I uh, had a, a great experience, a great week at this retreat, and it was on the drive home. I was actually carpooling with one of the men in the retreat. We had only just met at the retreat and forged quite a friendship. And on the drive home, I was sharing with him again my, my relationship woes and basically all the negative things in my intimate relationship is what I was sharing with him. And at some point he turned to me and he said something that snapped me out of that narrative um, because it was so direct what he said. I don't remember the exact words, uh, but it was, it was something along the lines of you hear what you're saying. Shut up, change your story, change your narrative. And in that moment I did. And I started to, to look at my narrative could be a different story when it came to my intimate relationship. And so I started to share the narrative internally and externally of what was right and positive in my relationship and what brought me joy in my relationship. And what I found is there were exponentially more things to think about and to talk about that brought me joy than there were things that did the opposite, that brought some sort of negative sensation or feeling. And then I also realized in how few negative things there were that by, by having that be my narrative, I was focused on the negative things. And a common teaching uh, when, it, when it comes to personal growth, self-development worth is you basically get what you focus on. So if you're always focusing, focusing on the negative things that might happen, the fear or the hurt or the pain or whatever it might be that is part of your narrative, then that is probably what you're going to be seeing because that's what you're looking for. And that's probably what you're going to be getting in part because you're projecting it and in part because your energy is so negative that it's going to be hard to receive anything positive. And so in switching my narrative and flipping it, it had life-changing implications. And it literally was in that moment that he told me to shut up and change my narrative that my life changed because I realized, wow, yeah, there's a lot of good going on. And yet I'm focused on literally the handful of things in my intimate relationship that aren't good and totally uh, excluding all the amazing things. Yeah. And do you think it's interesting when, it, when we come to being stuck in that area of negativity that, it seems like, and you know, feel free to throw in your input here, but it seems like that people get resentful of positivity. So it's like, it really takes again, like that critical moment, because if you could be a fly on the wall of your own life, a yeah. similar situation like that probably happened multiple times in the past, but you just probably didn't want to hear it at that time or couldn't receive that message properly at that time. Mm -hmm. And I only say that because I've gone through a few pivotal moments that I can really remember. Um, one of them was with my sister and two of them were with the same guy when they said something to me where it was just like, oh, you know, like they're just, but I know sometimes it just takes that moment. I also 
I'm an adult enough to understand, or like I'm reasonable enough to understand. I'm sure these things have happened before, but it just took the right set of circumstances at the right time. And somebody knew either intentionally or unintentionally, I needed to hear this at the time. Like that guy said to you in that car, mm-hmm. like, you know, like he just, he knew intentionally or unintentionally or consciously or subconsciously, like that was a message that you needed to hear at this time and it fundamentally changed your life past that and bear in mind we were in a circumstance where we had just finished a seven-day retreat about personal development and growth and so that energy level that i spoke of earlier we were operating at a whole different level than what we normally do in our day-to-day and i would i would say that especially knowing our relationship now he's one of my closest friends we were operating in a place of love for one another and so i was able to take his message and hear what he was truly trying to do, which was help me as opposed to getting that message and being like, fuck off, you know, which is what we commonly do. Uh, Someone tries to get it, right? Yeah. Someone tries to give us feedback and we see it always as criticism. That's, that's just one of our, our fallbacks. Whereas now I'm at a point where if I'm being conscious which is a tough place to be. And that's why meditation has, has become so repopularized because it does help to bring about a, a greater state of awareness and consciousness. But if I'm in that conscious state and someone gives me a critique or negative feedback, now I can find that as an opportunity to grow. It doesn't have to be something that triggers me or sets me off. It can be something where I, would, I, can, I can consider truly, I can sit with it and realize, yeah, there's some truth to that and there's definitely some validity and I can choose to own it or I can choose to, as we said earlier, be a victim of it. Uh, and it's, it's much, much healthier in my opinion to own it yeah. and try to try to adapt to it. Yeah. One of the books I've been reading recently, um, uh, might have been Osho's book on human rights. I can't. I can't remember. Um, but I remember reading like this. This blur that basically was talking like there's a very, very big difference between consciousness and your perception of reality. Mm. And it made me stop and think like, how many people think that those are a blended concept? Mm. You know, like. But it's not and like, you know, like, you know, like, it's truly not like I know it's true because I felt the moments and I understand and I, I've been through enough to know that it's not but it's like, it's uncanny how that we think like our perception of reality, like that's a conscious state, simply because we think we're awake, quote mm-hmm. unquote, you know, to like what's going on just and how far off the mark we are at. Then it kind of leads me into like another thing that regularly keeps coming to my mind. This concept is that were we ever there and we're coming back to it or are we just been continually refining to get to this point of a critical mass saying that we need to now take this wholeheartedly and understand that we need to be conscious of the world around us because if not, we become like an infestation of this planet, not only to this planet, but amongst ourselves as like a species as well. We were all there when we were babies. We were all in the state of beautiful, pure consciousness. That's the way we, we come into the world. So at some point, 
if it's not with us now, it's been in a way bred out of us. And that kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier with the, the emergence of the ego. And as the ego emerges, the shadow gets the, the other side of the self gets suppressed and turns into the shadow. And it's, uh, it's something where it can only be suppressed for so long before it starts to, to emerge. And it typically emerges in, in what can be a very ugly, uncontrollable way because it is a true part of us that basically we have continued to hold down and, and try to ignore it even exists. But every now and again, there are, are moments or opportunities where it starts to come to the for- forefront. And it, it then challenges our ego because someone who is calm on the surface most of the time goes off in a rage and, and starts throwing things and yelling things and hitting things. And it's something that perhaps they've never actually had that experience before, but that's been within them. And it's only coming out now because it's been suppressed for so long. And it's only coming out in this way because it's been deemed as being a negative part of us that we need to put away. And so as it emerges, it's emerging as this negative energy because we've never come to terms with it. We've never been able to embrace with it and join with it and realize that is part of my authentic self whatever those characteristics or emotions or traits are that we're suppressing. And, and typically those are the things that do appear in the most stressful moments in the most stressful circumstances. A lot of those um, childhood kind of knee jerk reactions will come forward. And in some cases we'll actually take on the persona of an eight year old because eight was probably the last time we actually allowed that emotion to come out. And it's, uh, it's, it's, it's mostly, it's been so far removed from all of us that we don't know how to deal with it when it does come up. And so I do find it's extremely important, whether it's self-help groups or journaling or meditation or retreats or friendships that we have a, a safe platform or a venue to explore those darker sides of us. And to do it without shame or guilt or judgment or negative judgment, I I should say, uh, because it is part of who we are. And we can either choose to continue to ignore parts, which are going to make us more and more fragmented, or we can choose to embrace them, which will make us more holistic and, and overall probably healthier, happier, and vibrating at a higher energy level. Do you... Do you correlate um, any of this narrative of life, you know, like, like this ego driven society, like, you know, the, like the emphasis on ego and like success being directly attached to ego um, because that we overvalue extroverted personalities and the perception of extroverted personalities are people who have like big egos, you know, like people are larger than life, you know, which we all associate ego attached to those narratives. Um, Because like, you know, we do like, especially in Western culture, put a pretty heavy emphasis on extroverted personalities, you know, and again, like there's just a certain song that goes with an introverted or an extroverted personality. Um, Do you think that's a cycle that we need to break and learn to be able to like value like introverted personalities or like, 
shift the emphasis on saying that there's value in both, or I guess like the actual real component is that everybody is a blend of both. Some people are just more extroverted in category mm -hmm. A than category B and vice versa. I think there's a value in labeling less, regardless of what the label is. Yeah. Because the more we label someone, then the more we pigeonhole them in a certain category. And it becomes harder for that person then to emerge as their authentic self in anything but in that category. So it's, as I said earlier, it's when you focus on negative, you get negative. And so the more we label, I think the more we're creating divisions between people. And someone who is so-called an introvert might be an introvert at that moment because they have pure genius inside of them that is that they're trying to figure out and, and trying to allow to emerge. Maybe they're an incredible artist or a, a writer or a musician. And uh, I, I don't have a, I don't have an actual answer to what you were saying, but I do, I do understand where you're coming from. That It is a lot. I think in our society, extroversion is more of what we see because and potentially value because of the way that we communicate again uh, largely being on these social platforms that are not real human heart-to-heart -heart connection but digital connection because it's often the loudest people who are on these platforms because i can't think i could be wrong on this um I don't know why you would be on Instagram if you didn't want people to follow you and to know what's going on in your life, unless it's a business account. And of course, many businesses rely on social media, but as far as a personal account goes, I, I'm, I'm not on any personal social media, so I can't speak with any sort of wisdom on it, but I just, I can't see another reason to have personal social media accounts other than to be seeking approval from others maybe i'm way off base in saying that but that's that's um it's what's coming up for me right now is that it seems like we are seeking ex external validation well and i think that if people didn't want to admit that they truly would just be lying to themselves because i just had a conversation with somebody um earlier today you know under that same context is like is literally the reason like why we post things is to get recognition for them no matter what the capacity is for whether it's a personal account or a business account or you know whether it's for like you know i love my kids or i love my business or i love hiking or i love acupuncture or i love whatever it is like it's just like essentially that's what it is is like that that fix of validation and you know like and i can admit that like i have social media accounts and you know I'm not trying to deny that fact, you know, like, mm -hmm. yeah, but I don't, I don't find my leverage. I don't find the sovereignty of my emotional state lies within that because I, I know how much I value interpersonal connections and that's where I find the values so like this other source. I recognize it for what it is, but my sovereignty doesn't lie there. Like, you know, like my, my emotional state doesn't lay within that. And I know how many people's do. And I find that to be the scariest part because it's like, because you've over identified in this category, which means you're fundamentally taking the tools away from yourself to be successful. 
off that platform and out of that environment, which, you know, understanding connections with under other people enlightens you to be able to have a better connection with yourself. Because the more, the greater the demographic of people that I expose myself to through conversation, I have never understood more about myself than in the last, you know, year doing this podcast. Cause I talked to so many people coming from so many different perspectives. And every time I talk to you guys, there's always a moment where I'm like, yeah, you know, like I get that. And that would be never something that you get on social media. I wouldn't like, I don't. Internal fulfillment is such a powerful thing. And when you can self generate your own, peace and fulfillment you don't need to seek it externally you don't need to extrovert to try to find validation and and it's i think it has become it's reached epidemic proportions where people are literally why there are now detox centers for social media because people are literally addicted to the hit the dopamine hit they get when someone likes their post or responds to their post I think, <laughs> well, you know, I was the only thing I was going to add is I've legitimately heard recently that there's people who will have more than one phone now to have both or like more than one platform open at a time. So that in like real time on say Facebook and Instagram or Instagram and Twitter, you know, Twitter and Snapchat, like they can have like multiple different things open. So they'll have two phones to be able to accommodate, facilitate that environment. You know, so again, mm-hmm. it's just like, and, you know, like I was, I think it was on Joe Rogan's podcast a long time ago when he was talking about, imagine if you would have told somebody, you know, like five or 10 years ago, or maybe 10, 15 years ago now that, you know, you give somebody something and they head down, they'd be saying, they'd be so focused on this thing that they would walk into traffic, you know, like drive off the road, you know, like get divorced over it, lose all their friends. Like you would never imagine that we would willingly participate in having this thing that's going to do that but we see it all day long. Like those things are regular occurrence. I can't tell you how many times I slam on the, my brakes, you know, driving around in neighborhoods because people walk right off the river, walk through an intersection, just staring at their phone and won't even lift their head up. Or, you know, like what you did to like people sitting around to like a table, you know, that you're paying five times more than what you normally would for this food and this so-called experience, but you're not experiencing any of it mm-hmm. because all you're really doing is experiencing your phone which you're going to do when you're sitting on the toilet anyway, because that's 90% of the time where most people spend on their phone and sitting on the toilet playing on the phone. You get in social media accounts, right? So. Yeah, it's, it's, it's been a, I can't do it. I personally, I can't figure out how I can be on social media and derive any sort of peace or fulfillment from it. And so I've just decided not, not to. And even at the detriment of my, my men's leadership business, because I, at this point, I don't want to have a social media platform connected to the work that I'm doing. Because it seems Do you think because of that though, that the, the men coming to your retreats would be the more authentic version of the men that you can get the most benefit from and they can get the most benefit from you you know, because of situations like that, because like I find, you know, like that no matter what's going in our lives, you know, like we have like an organic thrust to us. So if you're not on social media, but like these men are coming anyway, like I really want to believe and I feel inside like that these men would be coming because 
they need to be there. They need to be there amongst each other. They need to be there with you. They don't need to be at another retreat. They need to be at that specific one. So by way of a very organic environment, they ended up there anyway. Mm. You know, so like, you know, there's certain times where we look at like, you know, where we're trained to think that this is the way that it needs to happen, but it's still happening anyway. You're still hosting these retreats. People are still, or men are still coming. You know, yeah. so like there's obviously like a part of that, like that these are, the individuals that need to be there the most within your circle. Right. Yeah. And I could be wrong on what I just said about, I don't have social media because here you and I are on a podcast and I also host a podcast. So maybe that is social media. I I guess it is. Uh, I think this platform is, I've been drawn to the podcast platform to be able to share information and hopefully to help others. I think Uh, this is a little bit different though, because like, like this, this, this comes back to like, yes, it's not, not personal, but it's going to be exponentially more personal than, you know, you scrolling through an Instagram feed and tapping a little heart that sends me a message saying that you liked my post. Like we can gain real insight about each other as, you know, like human beings, because like after the first podcast, then when, you know, when you were over here on, you know, like the main line, you know, like I authentically, I was excited to meet you. Like, you know, like there was an excitement. If I had just known you via social media where we just liked each other's posts, I wouldn't have been excited to meet you. But like, because we had this connection on this podcast, like I was excited. Like I wanted to meet you in person. Like that was something that like, like I would carve time out of my day. Like, you know, you know how hard it was for us to be able to try to find this time, this day to work. But like, I wanted to make it work because like there was this, like I, I wanted to build that further like interpersonal connection with you. And that's where I feel like podcasts are very much different because then when I meet somebody, I like, I feel a connection with them, even though this is the most vague form to be able to form a connection. But so it's like social media, maybe in a lot more of an appropriate way. Yeah. Yeah. So um, that might actually be like a good place to wrap it up. So I got to get going. Uh, so I do a couple of errands before I pick my daughter, oldest daughter up from school. So, um, I know that you're not huge on social media with the retreat, but if, if somebody wanted to be able to get a hold of you to be able to, uh, to exercise one of your retreats, like, like how, uh, how would they get a hold of you? Yeah. Uh, the website is anchorpointexpeditions.com. Uh, anchor point is a, an archery term. And it is basically the point on your face that you draw the bowstring to. And it's the same point every time if you want to have a consistent shot. And so metaphorically speaking, the, the anchor point in leadership is, is that which keeps us rooted within our integrity so that regardless of what our actions are, they reflect our integrity. So that's where I can be found, anchorpointexpeditions.com. You can email me. Uh, we can jump on a Zoom call. I'm happy to do that. Or if you're on the island, Vancouver Island, look me up and we can do some archery together. Awesome. Well, thank you very much, Todd. I really appreciate you coming on the, the podcast. And it's, uh, it's always a pleasure to be able to carve some time out with you. Yeah, you too, Blake. I really appreciate it.